Well, uh, good morning one more time. Uh, glad to be with you. Before I get into the weekend message, I want to just do one more appeal. Uh, and I mean that, I, I've chosen that word uh, precisely, appeal to you to consider baptism on Easter. Uh, baptism has been this um, marker of, of commitment to Christ uh, throughout the entire history of the church. And on Easter, on the day that we proclaim this important step of Jesus moving from death to life, we sort of symbolically uh, look at our own lives and recognize that without Christ, we're sort of dead. We are more or less dead. And, and, and this new life that Jesus offers, this proclamation of faith and commitment that secures our eternity, secures our present. And so we just uh, mark um, baptism as this significant step for all followers of Jesus. If you've never taken that step, what better time than on Easter? It's such a symbolically powerful day, and if you want to be part of that, as soon as this service is over, we're going to have a little meeting. We just call it baptism prep. We'll be in the fireside room on the other side of this wall over here. And it's a chance just to chat for a few minutes. You can ask questions. We can coach you up a little bit and help you discern if this is your next step. But I can tell you, many of you, it is your next step. And so if you think about that, uh, consider being part of what is becoming a pretty good group that we're looking forward to on Easter. So look forward to Easter in a couple weeks. It's going to be a great, great weekend. So how many of you own books that you don't read? I'm guessing a lot of you have books sitting around your house. Yeah, I have a lot of books. I have books in my office uh, here at the church. I have a home office as well. We also have taken sort of our, our formal dining room in the front of our house, and we've put bookshelves in there and made it kind of a library because Crane and I are both readers. We have a lot of books, but a lot of books, admittedly, uh, we don't read. And so I went to my shelf yesterday, and I looked for some of the books that are there that I have not read. Uh, here's one, for example. It's called As You Wish. And it is The Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. Great little book. And, and I had this embarrassing moment last night when I admitted that I've never read this book because the person who gave it to me was sitting right there. And she yelled out, hey, I gave you that book. <laughs> Oops, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, never read that one. Here's another book that I bought a few years ago that I've never read. Uh, I opened it. I started it. I really couldn't get very far. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. And you're probably thinking, why would you buy that? I don't play tennis. I, I don't like tennis at all. Uh, the reason I bought this book is Pete Carroll is the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. He used to coach my favorite college football team, USC. And he is uh, known to proclaim this book as the best book he's ever read about the mental side of athletic competition. It's from the 70s. And so I bought it. Never read it. I'll get around to that one. I'm getting to it. Uh, and then this is one that um, I'm pretty sure Kareen has read. I've never read this. This is called Jewish Penicillin, Mother Wonderful's Profusely Illustrated Guide to Preparing Chicken Soup. Um, <laughs> it's got lots of pictures. Anyway, uh, weird stuff that we possess and we don't read. Well, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the books of the Bible that sort of sit on our shelf that we don't read. We're, we're looking at the flyover portions of the Bible, the parts of the Bible that we sort of skip over when we're moving from, you know, the big stories of the Old Testament right away, jumping to the new. In the middle are these prophets, including the minor prophets, that we just don't pay that much attention to. We're trying to change that for a few weeks here. And so this weekend, I want to have you meet Haggai, the prophet Haggai, Two short chapters, 38 verses, 1,100 words, rarely read. 
Haggai is the third to last book of the Old Testament. The other two at the end there are Zechariah and Malachi, and they're grouped together uh, as a threesome there because they're all considered post-exilic. The Old Testament is mostly the story of Israel, their triumphs, their failures, the ups and downs, and the lengths that God will go to preserve his original covenant promise in Genesis. That's sort of the backdrop to the whole Old Testament. Now, in Haggai, dates are really important. Unusually specific dating in the book of Haggai. And everything starts with 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., the armies of Babylon overran Jerusalem and they destroyed the most sacred space in all of Israel, and that's the temple. God's house, the symbol of God's presence, the capturing of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is what scatters the Jews and sends them into exile. They're, they're no longer sort of centrally located. They're, they're scattered all over. And this is particularly devastating for the followers of Yahweh as a people, especially because it looks like the destruction of the temple is the end of God's original covenant promise. And so this is utterly humiliating. The temple is the center of worship. It's where the sacrifices are made. Now, the Israelite people know, not, they know that God does not literally, physically reside in the temple. God is not confined to the holy of holies completely, but the temple is the place where worship happens. It's the place where his presence is experienced. It's the center of the community. It's a visual reminder of God's love and promise to bless them and bless the world through them. But it's all gone. Now, fast forward a few years in 539, Persia overpowers Babylon. So again, another conquering. But this one comes with a little bit of good news because this king, Cyrus of Persia, Cyrus the Great, he's kind of an early adapter of, uh, adopter of religious freedom. He's kind of a cool guy in that way. So he issues a decree in 538 B.C., that the displaced Jews who are now scattered can come back home, they can come to Jerusalem, and hey, if you want to, why don't you start rebuilding your old temple again? I, I, I'm, I'll bless that. I'll get behind that a little bit. Now, we actually have this edict from Cyrus. This physical artifact still lives on today. It's in the British Museum in London. You can actually go and see this. I've been to the British Museum. I never saw this. I want to go back and see this. That little edict is there. It's on a clay um, cylinder. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it's still around. So all of these Jews start to come back. Evidence would suggest that many of them stayed away. They had new homes, new families, new places to live. But about, we think, according to the book of Ezra uh, and other historical records, about 50,000 Jews come back to Jerusalem, and they come back, yes, to rebuild the temple, but also clinging to this hope that God will prove himself faithful to them again. And so they relaunched the building project. And Cyrus, this king, does more than just encourage, you know, the building. He actually provides supplies. Timbers are brought in from Lebanon. A foundation is, is reestablished there. A crude altar emerges, and slowly a little shelter, a little building begins to emerge from the ruins. But before long, the work stalls. They stop. And again, from Ezra, we have some clues why. Now, one reason is the Samaritans who are, you know, hanging around the area. The Samaritans are the, the mortal enemies of the Jews, and so there's some conflict there. And the Samaritans try to disrupt uh, the construction project. But the main issue was probably doubt. 
A lot of years had passed since that original promise of this covenant and, you know, how God was going to bless the world through them. But this story seems to have sort of lost its significance for the people of Israel. And maybe they even begun to question, you know, why is this project worth it? I mean, we're spending so much time and money on this construction project. Maybe, you know, this is just a, a, a farce. Maybe God's done with us. So this temple project remained incomplete. It was kind of a shell of its former self. Some of the Jews continued to go to the temple and they do their little worship and their rituals and say their prayers, but their focus began to shift from the temple and the communal experience to themselves. And they began to really just focus on their own homes and their own lives. So enter Haggai. That's all the backdrop. Here comes Haggai. We don't know that much about him. All we know is what we can read in the scriptures. It's not that much. We mostly just know the content of his message. And the best way to look at the book of Haggai, this short little book, is to look at it as four segments. There's four little mini sermons in the book of Haggai. They're all strung together, four distinct but little mini sermons. And we think they're all delivered in about three months. Again, precision dating is all over the book. Haggai is meticulous, he's organized, and his message is given in 520 BC. So if you wanna do the math one more time, it's 66 years after the destruction of the temple and 18 years after the decree from Cyrus that you can all come back and rebuild again. That's the timeline. So along comes Haggai. He's called by God, and he's given one job. Convince the people to take the focus off of themselves and put it back on this building project. Get the temple going again. So here we go. This is Haggai 1.1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, again, precision dating, some translations will say August 29th. You take that and, you know, you'll get August 29th if you really do this. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, <laughs> a whole bunch of names, a bunch of characters in the first verse, King Darius, then you have our prophet, and then you have two others, Zerubbabel, he's a political leader. Uh, he's from the line of David. Now, he doesn't have much power. So even though he's a political leader, he doesn't have much power because the Jews don't have much power. So he's kind of a, a minor figure. He doesn't really have much clout because uh, Israel doesn't have much clout. And then you have Joshua, uh, son of Josedek. He's a religious leader. Don't confuse him if you know your Bible with the more famous Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. Different Joshua, different guy. So Haggai is addressing Governor Zerubbabel and Reverend Joshua, and he's trying to influence them. He's trying to influence the influencers. He's trying to influence these two guys to motivate the people. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Uh, hear whininess. And the, the time is not. We can't do this. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? Paneling. <laughs> While this house remains in ruin. Again. The math on this one. This is 18 years after the exile ended and the Jews have been encouraged to come back. Maybe the project got off to a good start, but at this point, it's all stalled. And some of you know what abandoned construction projects look like. You've seen them. You know of them. 
uh, there was an abandoned apartment building that had started to be built near where I grew up. And my friends and I, we rode our bikes and we played on this concrete foundation for years and years and years. And every time I would go home, I would look to see if anything had happened to this. And I think it sat for like 30 years, just this foundation that had started to get deteriorated and covered in graffiti. It's just kind of an eyesore. That's what you might have here is just this abandoned project. It's stalled. Nobody's motivated. And what they're motivated to do is kind of fix up their own places. And these two guys that are being challenged here, Zerubbabel and Joshua, maybe they have really nice homes. You know, maybe there's a little bit of a, a jab here. Verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have you fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Kind of giving it to him pretty good here. Uh, some of you have heard the idiom, uh, he spends money like he's got a hole in his pocket. You know, it's that idea of as soon as you have a dollar, you know, it just goes right out. That's sort of what they're being accused of here, just kind of wasting money on themselves. So whatever all is going on, this much we know, 18 years after the people kind of resumed this visionary project to rebuild and restore Israel's temple, the center of, of culture and influence, but now they've lost their collective vision and their focus is only on themselves. They've become individual. And the word from the prophet is, come on, folks, can't you see this? All your energy is going into personal needs and not the well-being of the community and not this vision from God. And what's this doing for, for you? Like nothing, really. It's like you're putting your money in a purse with holes in it. Verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty. He's going to tell them. <laughs> because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. All the way back in Deuteronomy, a book that we read a little bit more often, God gave his word on what happens when people are obedient and faithful and then what also happens when they're not. And so the prophet is sort of taking them back to this idea and says, come on, let's go. Go up to the mountains, bring down the timber, build my house, let's go. That's the... You know, that's kind of what you should feel here a little bit. Now, the people aren't committing gross, obvious sins. They're not in full-scale rebellion. They're not being called out for idolatry or murder or, you know, not taking care of the poor. It's a little bit like what we studied last weekend in Zechariah or Zephaniah. Their sin is apathy. It's, it's complacency maybe, but definitely apathy. They've stopped caring about the things that God cares about. And so the call is to repent. The call is to turn. Uh, that's what repent means, to turn. And so if you're going to turn from apathy, you have to turn toward action. And, and so get the timber. Let's go. And it's interesting to think about this. They got to go back to the hills again. Remember Cyrus had told them 18 years ago, listen, I'll provide the materials. You just need to come in and, and start working. Now they got to go back and get more materials. Where did the other materials go? Well, they're probably in their homes. Busted. <laughs> They've been busted. Now, remember how I said that uh, this book is best viewed as four little mini-sermons, four threads. 
The first thread is all of chapter one. We've read most of it. Uh, I just want to show you one more verse from this first little message. This is a line from verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. So it's good. Like the people have responded. And we think like the timeline, again, because there's so much precision dating here, this all happens in about three weeks. So about three weeks later, the people are moving in a positive direction again. And let me just pause for a commercial, a little break, to acknowledge something that I described on Friday in that e-newsletter as well uh, that I told you I might mention this weekend, and that is that sometimes this text has been... mm, let's just say maybe misapplied or maybe manipulatively used by people like me, church leaders, to try to extract from people like you financial gifts for building projects because they will take this text and and say, you know, you shouldn't be so focused on your own pleasure, your own homes. Look at God's house. Look at God's house. It's in ruin. There's a couple of problems with kind of using this text as a fundraising text. I just think we need to be really, really careful with it. First of all, this is a specific command to a specific group of people at a very specific time for a very specific reason. And so it's a little bit dangerous to take biblical stories and then try to sort of apples to apples apply them to our context in our day. Though I will suggest that there may be a good discerning uh, exercise here for all of us to say, am I, you know, maybe too focused on myself and not focused. I mean, that's appropriate, but to literally kind of apply this aggressively, I don't think that's a good idea. And further, uh, if you were really cynical, you would suggest that, hey, listen, Jesus' actions on the cross, the tearing of the veil, the temple system has been largely, you know, done away with because of the actions of Jesus, so you don't need the same kind of, you could have that whole argument. I just, be careful with literally applying stuff like this, especially to something like a a church building project. So let me move on. Let's go to the rest of Haggai's messages. I'm going to kind of come back at the end and give you an application question for each of these four little mini sermons, but let me get to the rest. Here's the breakdown on one slide of of where these messages fall within the, the book of Haggai. Message one is all of chapter one. The other three messages are in chapter two. Uh, The first message is that great call to reconstruction. That's the big one. Message two are the first nine verses of chapter two. So it's a couple months later. The people have responded. They're engaged. They're building. But there's discouragement in the camp. As the people are working, they have begun to realize that the new temple is not going to be nearly as nice as the old temple. Like it's going to be kind of feeble in comparison. So Haggai speaks for the Lord again when he says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So here's what's going on. Uh, Some of the people in the community were around and saw the old temple. Like they were there. They they know what the old one was like and they're kind of coming up to the construction workers working on the new one going, oh boy, this is not going to be that great. Now, uh, 
again, they have to be older. So I'm, this is not a shot at anybody who's you know, a little bit older like me. Uh, but you had to be around for 64 years to see this. But some people are apparently still there. And they're kind of coming along and saying to the, to the folks, oh, boy, honey, this is not going to be nearly as nice as the old one. And you know what? They're right. They are right. The original temple by Solomon uh, had like an unlimited budget. And these great building projects throughout history, a lot of them are done with slave labor. You can get a lot done with slave labor. And so this majestic temple used to exist, and now this kind of feeble one is cropped. It's not going to have the gold-covered walls and the elaborate courtyards and all the same stuff. And I would imagine it would be kind of hard to be motivated to work on something that you knew was not going to be as, as nice as the old one, especially with those seniors chirping in your ear a little bit. So the people said collectively, all right, our mini temple is lame. Well, they didn't actually say that. I just made that part up. Uh, that's Greg's paraphrase. But yeah, they were kind of like, yeah, this, this thing is lame. What are we going to do? So here's the second message that is designed to keep the people motivated. Here it is. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. That line there about, you know, I, I was with you when, when you came out of Egypt, that's going all the way back to the Genesis story again. Look, look, come on, the Exodus, let's go. I've been with you. My spirit is still with you. Don't fear. It's a motivational speech, and it's anchored in this ancient promise, and it's anchored in God's love. It's reassuring. It's confidence boosting, and it's hearkening back to the original promise. Now, next weekend, we'll conclude the series with Zechariah. He's Haggai's successor, and his message overlaps with this one a little bit. And I don't want to take anything away from what's coming next weekend. But in chapter 4 of Zechariah, in his message, there's a, some similar uh, language in that work designed to motivate some unmotivated people. And here's how he describes it. Who dares despise the day of small things? Or I like how it's translated in the NLT. Do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. I really like that. Really like that. This is one of the reoccurring messages of the Bible. That whatever God begins, he will see it to completion. Even when the outcome seems to be in doubt, he's on it. He's got it. So Celebrate the little things. Don't despise those little movements of God when you see them happening. This is a little bit more from the second message of Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house, this house with glory. And then verse nine, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That's an interesting line, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord. There is so much going on here. So the promise is God will intervene in history. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. And he's going to do it again in this temple, this fledgling little temple that this group is struggling to rebuild, that's going to be the place where it happens. And about 500 years later, 
a child named Jesus will be presented by his parents for consecration in this temple. And when that child is 12, he will be accidentally left behind by his parents and he will dazzle and amaze and mystify the religious leaders that look after him until his parents come back. This is the same place. And when this child is an adult, he will teach, he will preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom in this very temple. All of that is glorious and it is the direct result of what these people are doing at that time. Yes, you know, years later, Herod will fix up the temple around 20 BC and, and make it more glamorous, but the greater glory of that present house has everything to do with what Jesus will accomplish in the future, not the skill of the workers who were working at it at the time. Okay, that's the second message. The third message from Haggai is from verses 10 to 19 of chapter 2. And again, because we have this precision dating in the text. We know this one comes about two months later. And of the four distinct messages in the text, this is the hardest one to translate. It's the weirdest of the bunch. Uh, so I'm not going to spend much time on it because I struggled with it and I'm almost out of time. So anyway, uh, the third message has a lot to do with consecrated meat and cleanliness laws. And it's about what happens to a person culturally if they eat something unclean or touch something unclean. And the teaching, in effect, is be careful what you touch, be careful what you consume, it sticks with you. It gets on you, like you can't escape it. So ultimately, the third message is about the damaging effects of sin and how easy it is to be influenced by the sin of other people. That's an interesting distinction. Haggai says, sin is naturally more contagious than holiness something the Apostle Paul affirms years later when he says, bad company corrupts good character. And so Haggai very much wants these laborers to, you know, stay on the job, to continue the reconstruction, but to work at it with pure hearts. That's the teaching there. And then in his final message, number four, it's delivered on the same day as the third message. This is the part I want to land with and, and leave you thinking about because this is the most messianic uh, section in his whole uh, book here. Uh, we're two weeks from Easter. So generally speaking, I, I like to try to teach texts and stories and biblical narratives that help us get ready for that great celebration that's coming. Uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, uh, Easter Sunday, this arrival of the Messiah in Jerusalem, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, more on that next weekend with Zechariah. But here is Haggai's last word. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Serubabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. And then jump to verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of Haggai. And if you are at all like me, and I sense by the looks on most of your faces, you're kind of going exactly what I did, which is, that's a weird ending. It's just kind of a problem. It just sort of ends there. Like, mm -hmm. um, if you don't find that inspiring, I can help you. Because key to this little section here is the reference to a signet ring. Anybody know what a signet ring is? 
Uh, it's a little ring. Um, generally, we'll have some inscriptions on it. It was historically worn by a ruler, a leader, uh, a king, perhaps, a governor. And it would have uh, inscriptions on there. And that ring would get pressed into wax. And that would be a way for a, 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 an authority figure to uh, sign legislation or to make a decree or something like that. So Haggai's message is intended to be upbeat. He's, a, he's addressing Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel perhaps needs a little encouragement because if anybody has any reason to doubt the, the whole story that God is up to something, it's Zerubbabel. He's a guy from the line of David. He's part of the royal line. He's a descendant of King David. And it's through his family line that this great thing is supposed to happen. And he's not seeing it. He's like, oh, I'm not seeing it happen. Like he's kind of a prince but at this point, he's just an insignificant vassal governor with very little influence. He's just kind of a local leader trying to do this little construction project, one that he'll never even see completed. So to this guy with massive doubts about the whole story, the whole promise, the word of the Lord to him is, listen, I'm going to reverse something here. And this part is really, really cool, and I would not have seen this unless I have some good commentaries that help me with this. But in Jeremiah 22, one of the major prophets now, God pronounces judgment on a wicked king, Jeho uh, Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel's grandfather. God says to that king, Jehoiakim, if you were like a signet ring on my hand, I would pull you off and throw you away. So Haggai's little speech here, in the end, reverses the judgment on his grandfather and reestablishes David's line again. So even though Jehoiakim was disqualified, God is committed to honoring his promise, the one that the world will be blessed through Israel, through the line of David. And if you don't know who he's ultimately talking about, you can probably guess as to who I'm describing and, and hinting at because we are in church and we're two weeks from Easter. Like he's projecting forward to Jesus. And so God says to Zerubbabel, listen, I'm going to rewrite history through you. I'm going to make you, you are like my signet ring. And if you jump ahead to the New Testament and the genealogies of, of Jesus and Matthew and Luke, you can see Zerubbabel's name is right there. He's counted among those through whom God is fulfilling his promise. Jesus arrives as the Messiah as the fulfillment of all of these promises back here. And that's where we're gonna end things for this weekend. Because that's all we know about Haggai. We never hear from him again. Uh, years later, we do know that the temple is completed. And so Haggai, I guess you could say, has a moment, but he fades away. But we're still talking about him today, which I think is kind of cool. Thanks be to God for that. So let's apply this. I said there were four uh, segments in Haggai, four little sermons. So let me just leave you with an application question for each of these, these four sections. The first sermon was about getting busy and building God's house, not being so focused on your own kingdom. Here's the application question. Are there any misguided priorities in your life? Any chance that God is trying to get your attention and you may not be recognizing it because your focus is on something else. Just something to think about. The second sermon was all about the people sensing that their little temple was not going to be quite as cool and majestic as the old one. 
So my challenge to you is just, are you possibly despising small things? Where might God be at work in little things? Can you see it? Maybe you're not looking. Don't despise the little things. The third message was the weird one about unclean meat and touching dead things. So my question to you is, you know, how is the company you're keeping impacting you spiritually? Or just how's the company you're you're keeping impacting? How are your friends impacting you? That's just a good question. And the fourth message is that great one of hope. It's the one where the Lord reverses the curse and tells Zerubbabel he's going to make him like his signet ring. So where or with what or with whom do you need to just trust in God's promises? One more time. Food for thought. I hope you process some of these questions and apply this a little bit and not let this end here. But we will uh, wrap up for now. Why don't you, if you wouldn't mind, stand with me. And let me pray for you, pray for all of us as we close this service. So Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these beautiful scriptures, these inspiring texts that are conundrums, they're confusing, but in the end, they're so inspiring and they're so encouraging. Thank you for your original promise, one that we still cling to today, that through the actions of Jesus, both, yes, historically, but also yet to come, is where we get our great hope and our confidence and our safety. So may we walk into this week ready to meet you and respond to the promptings of your spirit. And again, thank you for the gift of community like this. In your name we pray these things together. Amen. God bless everybody.